If you turn to, in your Bible to Acts chapter 21, we're going to be looking at this idea of courage this morning. Uh, that's the theme of, of the passage, what we're going to talk about, um, this idea of being courageous. Uh, if you've seen, uh, anytime that there's somebody who acts really courageously, and uh, maybe it might be, I know we've got a uh, Hurricane Florence that came in, right? There's rescuers and first responders that are in there taking boats around, rescuing people and, and dogs out of their homes. And, and, uh, and, uh, or you'll see a first responder. Uh, we just had the anniversary of 9-11 was just this past week, right? And you think about the people that rushed into that, that building and, or that were there in the days afterwards uh, serving people. Or, or you think about a military hero, someone who, who risked their lives to save their comrades. Inevitably, they put a microphone in their face and they say, hey, you're a hero. How did you become so heroic? Like, what led you to do this? And almost every time what they'll say is, I'm not a hero. I, I just did what I should have done uh, in that moment. And I'm sure anybody else in that same spot would have done the same thing that I did. And that's what courage looks like, right? Courage is become, when you become so certain and determined of the right course of action that it outweighs any risks or any difficulties that you might face in doing it, right? It's, for them, in acting courageous in that moment, they don't feel like there was a choice, right? They knew the right thing to do, and they did it. It was, it, was a, it was a simple equation, right? And so much of my life, I'm sure so much of your life, doesn't feel like a simple equation, right? So much of it feels complicated, and so much of it feels like it's hard to know what the right thing is to do so many times. And so my hope is that today as we look at the courageous example of Paul and we look at some other uh, aspects of courage, that we'll begin to see unfold what courage is going to look like in our life. And we'll become so set and determined on the right course of action that essentially we'll feel like there is no other choice. And, and my hope is for you that you'll see that, that the most courageous thing that we can do is to walk in the path that Jesus has laid out before us, whatever that path may look like. Uh, there was a, a pastor and a theologian, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that um, lived in Germany uh, in the time leading up to World War II and during uh, the Nazi regime. Uh, he, was a, he was an incredible, uh, he's an incredibly brilliant man. He was a theologian. Uh, it was a time when liberal theology was coming in. Uh, all the, the brightest scholars were essentially saying, hey, let's look at the Bible, let's study it historically, and let's criticize its text but we don't really believe that this really happened. We don't really believe that these are the words of God. And Bonhoeffer had the courage to come in and say, say hey, um, I will speak with you intellectually, but I will not waver on the fact that this is the word of God. Because if it's not the word of God, why are we studying it? <laughs> if it's not God's word, what value does it have into my life? And so he stood his ground against some intellectual giants and said, hey, I, I, I love the, what you're thinking. I, I will reason with you and I'll speak with you, but you won't get me to waver on the fact that this is the Word of God. And so those convictions that he found in God's Word led him to oppose the Nazi regime as it came to power, to oppose the German church as it became a puppet for the Nazi regime, uh, and, and, he, and he stood up for what was right in a time where darkness was overtaking the land. But there arrived a time when uh, men of his age were being forcibly conscripted into the German army. They needed more soldiers, and so anyone in a certain age group was being brought into the army. And he came to a point where he realized if he remained in Germany, he was going to be forced to go into the, to the army and to fight for a cause that he didn't believe. And so um, he had friends in America at some schools in America, and uh, he talked to them, and they ended up offering him a, a teaching job in America. And so he was able to leave Germany, avoid going into the, the army, and he was able to come to America uh, to be a teacher at a seminary here. 
But immediately upon arriving in America, he decided and realized that he had made the wrong choice. He got here and he felt convicted deeply that he had, he had made the wrong choice, that he had abandoned his people in their greatest hour of need. And so within just a couple of weeks, he got on a boat and he went back to Germany, knowing that he faced possible imprisonment, possible torture, ultimately possible death for what he had done. And yet, in an incredible act of courage, he got on the boat and he went back. And ultimately, it was because he felt there was no other choice for him. He had a great sense of peace in doing it. What gives someone that sort of laser-focused determination to do what is right? That's what we want to look at. That's what we want to explore this morning as we, did, as we dig into God's Word. And so, uh, hopefully you've turned to Acts chapter 21. Let me just set a little bit of context so you know where we're at uh, in the story. So, Jesus um, had his public ministry for three years, proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, uh, pro- proclaimed repentance. He did many signs and wonders, even raising people from the dead, proving that he was the Son of God. And yet the religious leaders of the time were jealous of him, and they rejected him, and ultimately they crucified him. But he didn't stay dead. <laughs> he rose from the grave, uh, defeating death, defeating sin, winning the victory that, that you and I can now enter into. And so when he rose from the grave, he came and he appeared to his followers, his disciples, and, and he told them all about how the scriptures had foretold that this was going to happen. And he showed them in the Old Testament how it was proclaimed and prophesied that the Savior would die for the sins of the world and rise again. And so he said, that is me. And now I'm sending you out into the world to tell them about what I've done. I'm going to ascend and go to be with the Father, but, I, Father, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send power on you to be my bold witnesses in all the earth. And so the disciples who had been cowering and hiding in an upper room for fear of being arrested received the power of the Holy Spirit and became incredibly bold in proclaiming Jesus. And thousands of people were coming to faith in Jesus and they were, they were, they were sharing the good news with everyone, but they continued to receive resistance from the, the powers at hand. And so, so some of the leaders were, were drug out into the street and stoned to death. Some were arrested and ultimately killed. And so it was against great persecution that they were proclaiming the gospel. And one of the greatest persecutors was a young Pharisee named Saul who was rounding Christians up and it was so zealous for it, thinking that he was doing what was right by God, that he, he got permission to go into neighboring towns and communities to get the Christians, arrest them, and bring them back to Jerusalem. And it was on one of these trips uh, that suddenly Jesus appeared to Saul and literally knocked him off his horse, <laughs> blinded him, and he said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus. <laughs> Changed and transformed Saul's life completely. His, his, his sight, his vision was restored. Uh, he was brought into the community of believers and ultimately became the greatest proclaimer of Jesus uh, to the whole Mediterranean world. And so he went around proclaiming Jesus, starting new churches, building up the churches. And so he's been doing this. And we come into the story at a point now where he's, he's gone and he's completed what he feels like God has called him to do. And he feels like now what God is calling him to do is to go back to Jerusalem, the, the, the hottest part of the furnace, the place where there's the most opposition against him, and to go back and to face that. And so we pick up the, the story in Acts 21. It says, and when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. 
And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside of the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed, and we said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned to their home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt. He bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and we went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us into the house of Nassan of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. A lot of detail, a lot of interesting action there, but there's, there's one sentence in there that really grabs me in this passage, and I'm sure you noticed it too, right? It's Paul's response. Paul says, For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Man, what incredible courage, right? In the face of prophecy, telling him, Hey, you, you don't just think it's dangerous. It is dangerous. You're going to be arrested. And he says, I don't have a choice. I have to go. God has compelled me to go and to do what he has called me to do. And there's nothing that will will talk me out of this. I'm prepared not only to be arrested, but I'm prepared to die if that's what God calls me to do. Man, what admirable courage, right? And and the danger here is, is to look at this passage and say, Okay, well, I guess if, if God calls me into a situation where somebody comes and, and, and holds me at gunpoint and says, deny Jesus or die, I would hope that I would have the courage to say, I will never deny Jesus. You can take my life, but you'll never take me from Jesus, right? Well, this is not just a sermon for those moments, right? This is the sermon for the everyday courage that's required of all of us. The everyday, to follow Jesus, takes that same sort of resolve and courage, it's much like being in a marriage, right? Like it, it's not a very good marriage if, if the husband says to the wife, honey, if, if, if people ever break into our home and, try and, try, and uh, try and take you out, I'll take the bullet for you. I'll jump in front of a bullet to save your life. But I'm not ever going to help you with the dishes, and I'm not ever going to do anything nice for you, and I'm only going to do self, right? Like that's not a good marriage. And so if we approach our relationship with Jesus, like, hey, Jesus, if you ever call me to take a bullet for you, I'm there. I got you. But... As far as today, I kind of have my own agenda of what I want to do, right? Like, real courage, real love says I'm as faithful in the biggest things as I am in the smallest things. And so as you approach this message, don't think like, well, man, if God calls me to be a missionary in the Middle East, I'm going to hang on to this one mentally. I'm going to go back and listen to it, right? This is for you today. God is going to lay things out for you today that are going to take courage. In the way that you engage with the people that you live with in your home, 
in the way that you, you speak with, with the people in your community, in your neighborhood, in the, in the choices that you make with what you're going to do with, with the time that God has given you on the earth. These are courageous choices. Every choice that we make is a courageous choice. And I, I want you to see it that way. And so as we choose to enter into this hard path of obedience, what is it going to look like? What is a life of following in obedience to Jesus Christ? What, what are some of the things that we can expect along the way? And I just want to point out a few of those things that we see in this passage here. And so, uh, so if you're taking notes, the first one is this, that there will be a new set of comforts that come along the way. Typically, in our life, we're after a, a very specific set of things, right? We want security. We want financial security. We want to make sure we have plenty put away in the retirement account, plenty in the bank account, plenty in the rainy day accounts, right? We want plenty of food in the refrigerator. We want to make sure that we have, have security. Uh, we want to make sure that, that we're comfortable. We're, we want to avoid risk. So we don't want to, to take on anything that could potentially be dangerous, or, or calls us to lose some of the gains that we've made. But, but comfort on God's path looks really different. One of the ways that God comforts us is by daily providing his timing and his providence. And we see it in a really simple way in this passage, right? Uh, Luke, uh, who's writing, uh, is, um, is a very detailed writer. And so in some ways, this is like his travel diary. And, uh, and what you see unfold here is incredible grace of God. It, it wasn't like back then that you could go on Expedia and say, all right, hey, I want to book a flight or I want to book a, a ship from, from Ptolemais to Tyre. So let me, let me get, a, and I'd like to have a room, uh, preferably with a balcony, but I'll take a window. I definitely don't want interior because I get seasick, right? It wasn't like that. You would go to the port. You would hope to find a vessel that was going in the direction generally that you wanted to go. You would hope that in addition to the cargo and the animals and whatever else they had on the boat, that they might have some room for you and that the captain might be willing to take you on, right? And so, so you were continually in uh, looking for, for God's providence, God's grace. And, and Luke just lays off this string of like, hey, we did this and it was good. It took us right there and, and there's no reports of bad weather, right? And, 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 and then when they got to these places... They continually found other believers that they were able to come and spend time with. Hey, we found a place to, to, to stay, and, and we found people that would, would provide for us and care for us. When we enter into God's path, we suddenly become very aware of his provision as we walk forward. And not only his provision in providing for us, but in the people that we meet along the way. I think it's fascinating here. He says that they went to Tyre, and they were there for seven days this wasn't one of the places where Paul had planted a church. And so they went and they just kind of found like, hey, are there disciples? Are there followers of Jesus here? And they went and they found them. And by the end of seven days, the entire community is walking them out and escorting them out of town, right? The, the, the husbands, the wives, the children, they're all walking through the town, walking them out to the boat. They're getting down on the beach and they're kneeling down and they're praying together and with tears uh, saying goodbye. I mean, how amazing that in seven days they were able to develop that kind of bond, right? I don't know if you guys have ever uh, had this experience. I know that on some of our trips to Brazil, um, we develop these incredible bonds with the, with the church, the believers that are there. Uh, and, and we'll typically do it over eight days, but really two of the days are just full travel days. And so really, we're only in country for six days. We speak English. They speak Portuguese. So we talk through translators, um, and, and we're gathering with them nightly. But by the, by the sixth night, by the farewell night, there's tears flowing, there's, there's hugs, and there's, there's promises of keeping in touch on Facebook, right? There's, there's this deep bond of love that grows in a really short amount of time. And the thing is, when you're, when you're on mission, when you're courageously following the path that Jesus laid out for you, 
you're going to identify and recognize other travelers that are on that same path. And you're going to feel this instant bond of kinship that, that, that transcends anything that you can understand. I remember uh, the, one, uh, the one time we were there and we went into this school and, and we were able to share our testimonies with the children in the school, which was amazing. And then afterwards, they kind of took us into the teacher's lounge and they had refreshments for us there and they had drinks and they had this, uh, this candy that was called Hapadora, which was basically just pure sugar. I mean, it was just like, almost like sugar cubes, right? We're eating this and we're like, man, this stuff is amazing. We got to get some. And so we go to the grocery store and we're kind of looking around trying to figure it out. And the one clerk, he, he doesn't speak English. We don't speak Portuguese, but he's like trying to like, what do you look for? And, and um, I, I, I knew one word. I was, I was like, Hapadora? And he's like, Hapadora? And I was like, yeah, Hapadora. And so he takes me and he shows me the Hapadora section, right? And so I'm grabbing all this to take home and we, we load it up. We go back to the hotel. We get ready for church that night. And then when we get to church, we walk in, and who's there but the guy who had helped me at the grocery store is standing there, and he looks at me, and he's like, Hapadora! And I was like, Hapadora! And we, we go and, like, hug each other. And um, the grocery store Hapadora wasn't as good as the school Hapadora. I'm not sure why, but, um, but you know, over one random Portuguese word for candy, we, there was just this bond, this kinship. And, man, I know, I know many of your stories in here. Um, there can be a cost to following Jesus. And sometimes it costs us those that we're close to. It costs us relationship with our family. It costs us relationship with friends. But, but as, we, as we struggle with losing some of those relationships, God fills in with these beautiful relationships in the family of God that, that, that the followers of Jesus become family to you. And you, you develop this relationship and this kinship that, that just goes beyond explanation. And, and, and in a week, Paul could develop relationships that are deeper than some of us develop in, in 20 or 30 years of working with somebody, right? Um, that, that, that we have these superficial relationships as we're pursuing comfort and we're pursuing security. And, uh, and, and, and yet sometimes when we enter into a courageous following of Jesus' path, he brings, these, he brings relationships to life. Beyond that, we see... Uh, the, the exchange of one set of comforts for another. The other thing that we notice on this path is that those that care most deeply for you may try to persuade you away from the hard path of following Jesus. The ones who love you the most may look at the changes that are taking place in your life and say, hey, I don't think you should do that. Look at what you're giving up. Look at what you're risking. What are, what, what are those people going to think? And they're not doing it to be mean. They're doing it because they love you. But they're looking at the choices that you're making and following Jesus, and they're, and they're basing it off of, off of earthly assumptions, right? That they have a set of values of, of comfort and wealth and safety and risk. But what they don't understand is that the most risky thing you can do is to look at God's path and walk a different direction, right? The most, the most uh, uncomfortable thing you can do is, is to pursue earthly comfort at the expense of of experiencing the comforts that God wants to show you along the way. Uh, to pursue the provision that you can make for yourself rather than putting your, yourself faithfully in a position of experiencing God's provision for you. And they do it with good intention and they do it out of love. But sometimes following the path that God has laid out for you is going to mean courageously being able to say to the people that you love, I know you don't understand, but you've just got to trust that God knows what he's doing. When Bonhoeffer made the, the, the choice to go from America back to Germany, 
Uh, there were people who loved and cared for him that did not understand that decision. There, there were Americans that had gone to great expense and effort to get him the position at the school, right? They had gone out on a limb. They had got him the interview, and, and they said, hey, listen, look, I put my reputation on the line. I told them that you were going to come, and, you, and, and, and I extended myself, and now you're, after two weeks, you're going to turn around and go back? I don't understand. And you're probably going to die there. Why, why would you do this? They didn't understand, and they did it out of love and care for him. But he had to trust that God's voice in his life was, was the one that he needed to listen to. He may put you in that same position. You may be in a position where people who you love and respect and cherish and value their opinions, but there may become a time where out of their love for you, they may advise you against it. We see here Luke himself was saying, he was pleading with Paul, don't go, don't do it. And then Paul says, no, I'm willing even to go and die. And I love, it's almost comical what they say, right? In verse 14, since Paul would not be persuaded, we ceased and we said, well, let the will of the Lord be done, right? It's kind of like, hey, their backup plan is like, well, if you won't listen to us, I guess do God's will, right? That's a good backup plan. It's a good backup plan to have, right? Let the will of the Lord be done. Rather than saying that begrudgingly, let's make that our option A, Let's pursue the will of the Lord as, a, as our first choice. So on this path, God gives you new sets of comforts. It's possible that those that love you may try to persuade you against it. But the thing is that you have to do is you have to stay faithful to the end of the journey. You have to see it through to the end. If you take the temptation to bail out in the middle, you're never going to know what awaited you at the end. You're not going to learn the hard lesson of, of persistent obedience unless you see it through to the end. Last season for Eagles football fans was, was an epic season. There'll never be another one like it. Even if they win the Super Bowl this year, there will be nothing like last year. Why? Because they did it through incredible adversity, right? The MVP of the league goes down. He's done for the season. The backup quarterback comes in, and he looks horrible for multiple games, right? But somehow, there was nothing in there that would have told you that in the Super Bowl, he was going to have a flawless performance, right? It just went beyond expectations. That Super Bowl was so much more enjoyable because it was punch and counterpunch. It was, it was tense right up to the end. Uh, there was adversity. There were things to overcome. If the Eagles had just won that Super Bowl 56 to nothing, I don't think I would have enjoyed it as much. It's, it's in the adversity. It's seen things through to the end. If, if they go out and they're losing to Tampa by 28 points in the third quarter, don't shut the game off today, right? <laughs> because if they come back and win it, you're going to be kicking yourself. You've got to see it through to the end. And the same thing is true in our life. There's so many times Satan is always there with the off-ramp. Satan is always there whispering like, hey, it's going to be so much easier. Just go over this way. You don't have to do it. It's been hard. This is too hard. Just, just take the Take the exit. But we won't know unless we see it through to the end what God has in store for us. That's why we're calling this whole series Faithful to the End. There's incredible joy in seeing it through to the end. The last thing that I want to see is that we're not alone on this journey, that we have, we have examples to follow. We have the example of Paul, which we're going to be looking at over the next eight or nine weeks, and ultimately and perfectly, we have the example of Jesus. Look at how Jesus experienced these exact things that we're talking about this morning. Jesus said, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Think about this. God sent his Son to earth, and Jesus came not into a kingly palace, not with great wealth, not with great political influence. He came in obscurity. 
And I think part of that is because Jesus realized that the great, the great wealth is in knowing God as provider when you have nothing. For three years, he, he traveled around uh, Jerusalem and the surrounding territories. He never accumulated great wealth, but he was continually in a position to experience God's provision, right? When he needed to speak to the crowd, there was a fishing boat available that he could get on and they, they could push out into the water. And then when he was done preaching, he came back and he invited those fishermen to join him and they became some of his best friends and his disciples. There was a colt that just happened to be available to carry him into the city during the triumphal entry. Uh, there, there were empty vessels that could be filled with water and turned into wine. A sudden storm that looked like a, a great calamity was actually just an opportunity for him to show his incredible power. A little boy just happened to pack a lunch of fish and loaves, and they became uh, the, the elements of one of the greatest miracles that Jesus ever performed. Everything that happened in Jesus' life every day became an opportunity for him to see God's provision. Do we live that way? When we wake up in the morning and whether we're presented with incredible opportunities or incredible challenges, do we look at those as being gifts from God and opportunities to rest in faith in his provision the way that Jesus did? Not only that, but Jesus built incredibly deep friendships. In the three years of public ministry that we have recorded, he builds these amazing, powerful love relationships with people. He was deeply connected to the 12 who he poured himself into. He loved the Samaritan woman at the well. He loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He developed these, these deep relationships, and he was continually traveling. And so he saw these people for these very brief moments, and yet it wasn't the, the quantity of time he spent with them. It was the quality of time. Do we, do we experience that in our own life? Are we able to, to go deeply with a person? There's, there's people you can spend years with and never get below the surface, and yet in, in an intentional Holy Spirit-led deep conversation in 30 minutes, you can feel like someone has become a brother or a sister for life. That's what it looks like on the path that God lays out before us. We saw the people that loved Jesus rebuking him. Peter said, Jesus, stop talking about the cross. That's not going to happen for you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan right? Now, I'm not going to encourage you when a loved one this week tells you not to follow what Jesus is calling. Don't call them Satan, right? That's probably not going to, that's not going to be a relationship builder for you. Jesus' own mother and brothers came and tried to get him. They're like, Jesus, you're making a fool of yourself. Come home. Stop doing what you're doing. They, the, the ones that loved him didn't understand what he was doing. And so they tried to talk him out of it. But ultimately, Jesus remained faithful to the end. He never wavered on his mission. Not when they wanted to take him and make him a king. Not when they wanted to drag him out of the city and stone him to death with rocks. Not when uh, his disciples fell asleep when they were supposed to be staying awake and praying. Not when Pilate said, hey, just, just defend yourself and I'm going to release you. He would not leave his mission because he was determined in his heart. He knew that the greatest thing was to do what he had been sent to do by God. And nothing would cause him to waver from that. That was courage. And because he had courage, we can have courage. Because he set that example and accomplished the greatest victory for us on the cross. He did what we could never do. Now we can place our courage in him and trust in him and follow with him. I want this to be incredibly practical for you. Um, and so I don't want you to walk out today saying, God, what is the incredible courageous thing that you want me to do. 
Do you want me to, to travel to another country? Do you want me to, to sell all my things? He may call you to do one of those things, and if he does, man, I will celebrate with you because that will be an awesome step of faith. But, but I think really what he wants you to do is figure out how to have courage right here and right now. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, returned to Germany. He was arrested. He was put in prison. He was beaten. He was interrogated. He was moved from, from camp to camp. And even as the Nazis were losing the war and the Allies were winning and, and the Nazi regime was crumbling, uh, they, were, they were lashing out, trying to destroy everything that they could on their way down as, as a metaphor of Satan, right? Satan is seeking to devour who he can in the, in the limited time before, before his time ends. And, and the Nazis were doing the same thing. And so Bonhoeffer was in prison, and he knew that it was very likely that his time was coming to an end. And, and I want to share with you his words, what he learned in that experience. He says this, he says, During the last year or so, I've come to know and understand more and more the profound, this worldliness of Christianity. The Christian is not a religious man, but simply a man, as Jesus was a man. I don't mean the shallow and banal, this worldliness of the enlightened, the busy, the comfortable, or the lascivious, but the profound, this worldliness characterized by discipline and the constant knowledge of death and resurrection. I discovered later, and I'm still discovering right up to this moment, that it's only by living completely in this world that one learns to have faith. One must completely abandon any attempt to make something of oneself, whether it be a saint or a converted sinner or a churchman, a righteous man or an unrighteous one, a sick man or a healthy one. By this worldliness, I mean living unreservedly in life's duties, problems, successes, and failures, experiences, and perplexities. In so doing, we throw ourselves completely into the arms of God, taking seriously not our own sufferings, but those of God in the world, watching with Christ in Gethsemane. That, I think, is faith. That is repentance. And that is how one becomes a man and a Christian. How can success make us arrogant or failure lead us astray when we share in God's sufferings through a life of this kind? Dietrich was, was courageous, but what did he ultimately do? He spent the last couple years of his life 24-7 in captivity. He couldn't do anything. He wrote letters. He encouraged those that he loved. He spoke with whatever prisoners were put with him and, and tried to encourage them and speak Christ into them. He won over many of the guards that were watching him, that loved him. And ultimately, he went to his death. Around the end of the war, before the Allies were to, able to completely end the regime, he was killed. And I don't think he would have done anything different because he walked a path that led him to learn how to live with Jesus every single day, even in prison. If he could do that, how much more can we do with the freedom that we have? Every morning you wake up with a world of opportunities before you. But the choice is, am I going to do the agenda that I've laid out for myself, which quite often is to attain comfort and safety and avoid risk and build up security, or each day am I going to choose to make myself available and say, God, I want to know you today. I want to see each challenge and opportunity as, as, as coming directly from your hand. 
I want to walk in courage and confidence. I want to build relationships with, with other followers of Jesus. And, and none of this is possible without Jesus. Without Jesus, we set our own agenda. We try and accomplish something, but, but what does it attain at the end? The only day, way that we, we, we pour ourselves into something that will last forever is when we put ourselves on the mission of Jesus Christ. And so your greatest mission field, you might be standing in the middle of it already. It might be in your home. It might be at your workplace. It might be here in this church. There are incredible opportunities to act with great valor and courage every single day if we will connect into the, the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus has placed in us. And that's what I want for us. That's what I want for us as a church. That's what I want for us as individuals. People living like that can't help but change the world around them. And that's my prayer for you. And I just want to encourage you that if you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus or, or walked with him, I hope that he has made it so attractive to you today. I hope that something is burning in your heart, <laughs> calling you to live that way that you've been shown a, a purpose that is greater than yourself, that, that allows you to experience incredible victory, even in, in the middle of what the world would call defeat, that would lead you, if, if God called you to, to choose captivity and death over freedom and comfort. And if, if you're feeling that way today, that's the Holy Spirit calling you, resonating in you what is true. And you can take the first courageous step today, which is to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The only way to be in a right relationship with God the Father is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone and what he has done. You can't hope to live a life of courage and valor and hope that you'll make yourself acceptable to God. It, it doesn't work that way. Jesus has done it perfectly. And when you believe that he's the Son of God who did that for you and you receive that free gift of salvation, then he promises that he will send the, the Holy Spirit to, to reside in you and you will begin to understand and know the will of God in your life. And you can walk in a joy and a freedom that you've never known before. But it all begins by putting your faith in Jesus. So I'm going to invite you to, to bow your heads, close your eyes. And I just want to give you an opportunity today, if you have never placed your faith in Jesus, that, that today can be that day. This is the, the most courageous thing that you would ever do. And it's simply to, to pray this prayer. Say, Heavenly Father, I know that I have sinned. And I know that my sin has separated me from you. I pursued the, the comforts of this world, but I see now that they're fleeting. I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe that I'm loved and cherished and forgiven. I believe that you have a plan and a purpose for my life. And I receive it joyfully today. Thank you for forgiving me. Show me how to walk with you every day, God. I pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.